Amen. So we are doing, uh, as we lead up to our um, service on February 9th, where we are going to become an independent church, and also we're going to reestablish or reaffirm our membership vows to one another. We're doing a short series on uh, the different membership vows that we, that we have and that we take. Uh, and so today we're going to look at a passage uh, that talks about our eighth membership vow, which talks about um, promising to regular, worship regularly with the other members of the church, to love them and serve them and pray for them, to serve them with the gifts that God has given us. And so we're going to look at that today, and I'm going to use, we're going to use uh, two, two, uh, two passages, Hebrews 13, 23 through 25, and Romans 12, 3 through 21 to pull out or as the control verse where all those things are found in the Bible. So if you would please stand, if you are able, out of respect for the reading of God's word. Now let's listen intently to God's inerrant word. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There was a uh, study last year that came out of Eastern Illinois University that showed that the uh, amount of people who identified uh, with no religious tradition had gone down. They call these the nuns. It's, they call it, it's a big, not nuns, N-U-N, nuns, N-O-N-E-S. 
We call this uh, the rise of the nuns, meaning that in, when asked the question, what religious tradition do you associate with, they check the box, none. And so the rise of the nuns was a big deal because it went up from 21% to 23% from 2016. And at the same time, those who identified uh, as evangelicals went down almost the same amount from 24% to 25.5%. And so the first response, of course, of the secular meter was just, was just overjoyed. They were just jubilant and rejoicing in jubilation because of the fact that because people who identified with Christianity had gone down from 79 to 77%, surely the complete collapse and demise of the church was only around the corner. Uh, finally, but on second look, what they, they found, uh, Pew Research did a second look at the data, and what they found was that a lot of those people uh, weren't just people who were leaving uh, the Christianity, it wasn't people um, who were giving up on Christianity. It was people who had just given up on the local church and they just, they'd cut out. Now, and this is, this is a big trend. People are leaving their association with the local church and, and you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's, we are in a lot of ways, we're sowing, sowing the seeds that we've laid down for the last couple of generations in um, not ever really giving people a full understanding of Christianity to begin with so that when the doubts and pressures of our culture hit, that people become confused and full of doubt. Uh, when, when things that we culturally just assume to be good and, and true and beautiful are contradicted by the Bible and people are never given a, a full understanding of that and why that is, a lot of people are cutting out because of doubt and fear and um, and so that's one big reason, but also another big reason is because church can be really hard. And y'all know this. I mean, anybody who stuck around, stuck around in the local church knows uh, that it can get really difficult. I mean, relationally difficult, right? Once the honeymoon phase is over, uh, it becomes really clear that all that stuff in the Bible about the church being full of sinners and all that stuff from Paul about like being the chief of sinners, that wasn't all a bunch of false humility, that was on the real. Uh, and when you experience that, when you experience that with a distorted view of what community is or is supposed to be or what it's supposed to do for us, people often give up on the church uh, and they just go off on their own and do Christianity on their own. And a lot of those people are what they call, call the nuns. And we get, as a church, we get that. One of our strategic anchors of one of the things that we are trying to do as a church is be what we call a city of refuge. And we understand that a lot of people are hurt by the world uh, and we want to be available for them, but we also understand that a lot of people have been hurt by the church. A lot of us have been hurt by the church and we want to be, um, we want to be a church that's able to minister to people like that. So here's a question, if it's, if, and you probably have all experienced this, if being in church, it can be so hard, especially relationally hard, 
when it gets difficult, when, there's, uh, when you're in a fight with somebody and it's just hard to show up to church and see them or uh, it just gets so, you know, just so tense and difficult that it just gets easier to leave, why? Why would you even, why do we even keep doing this? Why with the plethora, with the literal Christian smorgasbord of like the best teaching on the planet, the best preaching on the planet, more Christian resources are available and easier to access than at any other time in history. Why do we keep coming to the local church? Why don't we just do it in your kitchen table between you and Jesus and you don't have to worry about any of these sinners? And that's the question I'm going to try to answer today through this passage. And the answer that the Bible gives is because the local church is the place where God nourishes us, the local church is the place where we nurture one another, and the local church is the place where we grow in our knowledge and skill of community. We grow in our knowledge and skill of doing community, doing life together. So let's Look at that part, all that one part at a time. First, the church is where God nourishes us. I have a, a good friend, a Christian friend, who spent probably 10 or 15 years of his life pursuing the perfect diet. Maybe the perfect, uh, really almost pursuing, in his words, he says, pursuing salvation through the perfect diet. And at first, uh, you know, he became vegan, and, and, and then he became raw vegan, and then he became, uh, you know, direct source, organic, raw vegan. Uh, and it was the perfect diet by any popular standard, if you pay attention to that stuff, except there was one problem. He was just tired and sick all the time and felt really weak. And so, I'm not saying that a vegan diet can't be very full and, and full of nutrients. Uh, I'm not saying anything against a vegan diet. If you're vegan here today, all power to you. However, for my friend, for this example, for this illustration right here, okay, uh, <laughs> he went to the doctor, got a blood test. He was anemic. He was like not literally, he was malnourishing himself uh, and star his body was being starved to death in his pursuit of what seemed like to him in his human understanding the very best diet he could possibly be on. He was literally starving his body, causing himself to be sick. And the most extreme example, I just read this story, I gotta throw it in. There are some people who are so, there have been people, there is a trend growing of people who are so intent on not causing any harm. This is not a joke, I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. They have attempted to nourish themselves through photosynthesis. And they have believed that if they just sit in the sun long enough they, they, and, and believe that they can do it, they have photosynthesized, and there's been four or five deaths. I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's not funny. I mean, on the one hand, think of the, the, think of the dedication that person must have had to, to literally starve themselves to death in the pursuit of that noble value. But what seemed, the point is what seemed to be such a noble and good thing can, be, can, uh, can lose sight of really important parts of the equation and become destructive to us. And the same thing happens with the big current trend of DIY, do-it-yourself, 
pop uh, religion Christianity where people want to just do it on their own and not be around any of the sinners. And the, and the problem with that is that in the same way, it misses out on really important nutrients in the spiritual diet that God has for us. There are key ingredients that you do not get if you're not part of a local church. The Bible talks about them. Let's look at that verse in, from Hebrews again. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, there's a lot of emphasis on that and the horizontal value, right? When we were just doing that time of fellowship in our service, that was really encouraging. It's really encouraging just to get together with other Christians and talk about like what your challenges are, what you're facing, how your week is going before the service, in that time, after the service. But even more than that, the horizontal aspect is we are all, when we all get together and we are all worshiping God together, it takes away one of the devil's most powerful tools, which is isolation and convincing you that you are on your own. There's nobody else doing this. Uh, there's something about all worshiping together that, that, that encourages us in our faith and reminds us that we are not alone. There's, a, there's a, a whole church of people that God is calling to himself, filling with his spirit and responding to him in praise and worship. And that in and of itself encourages us, strengthens us, uh, and it's one of God's gifts. However, that's not the biggest one. The biggest one is vertical. And this is something that's largely been lost in the, the cultural understanding of the church in America today. That we're not just meet, this is not just a lecture with some music. We're not just meeting here to learn facts about God. This is a mystical encounter, a supernatural experience where God comes and promises to meet us and strengthen us and encourage us through his spirit. One of my favorite Psalms in uh, Old Testament Psalms is Psalm 73, where Asaph is the, the psalmist who wrote it. He has gone himself, he is so discouraged by the fact that, he, that, that all the, everybody who hates God, all the, all the evil people around him seem to be prospering more than anybody, and he and other people like him are, you know, are, are, are suffering. And he's like, how could this even possibly be? And there's this one line in the verse that's always caught my attention. Actually, my Hebrew professor told me, to, he like pointed this out to me. He said, Asaph was just bemoaning and just complaining about how, how the, the rich and people who don't believe about in God, people who mock God are just ex experiencing their best life now and, and just you know, living in luxury. And he sees God's people are suffering. And he said, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed like a wearisome task. Like, uh, this just, just doesn't make any sense at all. And then it says, until, and what happened? Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Now, that's important. That happened to him when he went into the sanctuary of God. But what did he see when he went into the sanctuary of God? He saw the animal sacrifice taking place and he discerned two things. Number one, that the wages of sin is death and that although things might be hard now, very shortly the tables are gonna turn and those people are going to be in an awful, awful position, which helps us to not be upset but to have compassion and to pray for them and love them. 
But he also understood what that animal sacrifice meant, what it pointed to. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. These animals are dying so that you don't have to. These animals are dying in your place. And all of that was pointing to Jesus. Pointing to Jesus and he reestablished in his mind the big reality that, that, that God had provided a sacrifice, has provided a sacrifice for us in Jesus. And because of that, our end is guaranteed and beautiful and good no matter what's happening right now. And there's, there is, don't miss that. There is something that happens here in corporate worship, in Sunday morning worship, where the Lord impresses that on our mind and our spirit in a different way that he does at other times. How do we know that? Here's another piece. Here's another piece of evidence. On the road to Emmaus, the two disciples are walking home after the crucifixion of Jesus, completely distraught. They thought the one they believed in was dead, and all of their dreams and hopes were crushed. Jesus is walking along with them, making jokes. <laughs> then he goes into a long Bible study. They have no idea who he is, and then at the very end it says, when he was at the table, remember this is the first day of the week, that's a pattern being developed here. It's Sunday, it's the first day of the week. There's exhortation and teaching out of the Bible. And then they sit down to the table to break bread. And it says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. That's very important, specific language. And then it says, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And they ran back to Jerusalem and said, they told everybody what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. None of that is an accident. That is God putting those patterns into place, worship on the first day, teaching from the Bible, breaking of bread, and in that, he promises that Jesus will be revealed to us in a special way that he's not in any other place. That's not an accident. What's actually happening here as we meet, technically, is a covenant renewal service. In the Old Testament, Israel would get the covenant or they'd reestablish the covenant. They'd say, this time we're gonna try really, really, really hard and we're really gonna really keep the law this time. 15 minutes later, they'd totally break the law. God would come back, reestablish the covenant with them again. The whole Old Testament from uh, the fall in the garden, I mean from, you know, from the Moses, this golden calf, all the way through the rest of it is all, is that pattern. God establishes his covenant. The people break the covenant. God comes, reestablishes the covenant. The people break the covenant. God reestablishes the covenant. And that's what he's doing here for us. Because y'all broke the covenant this week. <laughs> Amen? And you're coming in there. There's at least a part of you that's like, mm, man, I don't know. I don't know what God's thinking about me now. What do I got to do? And he come, we come here, and his answer is, you don't have to do anything. I already did it. What I want you to do is come and avail yourself of the grace that I am pouring out in the preaching of the word and the receiving of the, bread, and the body and blood of Christ and be reassured that my covenant on my half is not broken. I fulfilled the requirements and you are accepted in the beloved. That's a supernatural, mystical thing that happens. It's not rational. There's nothing rational about that. 
Rational is, if I just listen to the words on the podcast, I will be blessed in the same way. That's our rationalism speaking. God has promised a special blessing upon the gathering of his people where his Holy Spirit works in power through his word, through his sacrament, and it's happening to us right now. Isn't that crazy? Right now, God is with us and he's blessing us. If you miss that, and I see this all the time, people stop coming to church, they start having problems. <laughs> There's a direct correlation, a correspondence, correlation between really difficult counseling cases that we have to enter into as pastors and church attendants. <laughs> Super strong correlation. I mean, there's obviously other factors involved, for sure, but there's something about a steady diet of receiving God's grace, his special grace in this mystical encounter that sustains us. It's not about like what we remember. I, you know, what did I preach about three weeks ago? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to think about it. I'd be like, I could figure it out. I might have to go to my computer and look at my notes. I don't know. That's not the point. It sustained me three weeks ago. Just like your food. Just like living, just like food, living bread. It sustains us through the wilderness. So we gotta come. That's why it's so important to come where God nourishes us in the local church through service. Second part, the local church is where we nourish each other. There's also a part that we play where God has gifted us with spiritual gifts that he intends us to use to bless one another. If you ever were part of... Um, you don't have to be a Christian long before you run into this, the ubiquitous spiritual gifts test, right? When I first became a Christian, that was like the first week I like did, you know, I did the altar call. I'm like, yeah, I'm really mad that you made me stand up and come up here. And, <laughs> and then the next day I like woke up and I was like, wow, I'm a Christian. I don't even know how that happened. And then like the week after that, we're in like the new believers class. First thing they do is they break out like, you know, the, the 40 question spiritual gift tests. And right up front, they have all the categories, you know, like apostle, teacher, prophecy, uh, service, health, <laughs> mercy, hospitality, you know, they got all the lists. And so what do you do as an immature Christian when you get a hold of that test? You're a brand new baby Christian and you're like, you know, you're like, apostle sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what I did. I got that test and I'm like, apostle, that sounds, that sounds like something I could do. Totally. I could, you know. They're not hiring for me to fly the space shuttle this week, so I'll try apostle out. And then I started going through the questions. I'm like answering, well, how would an apostle answer this question? And then guess what? I got to the end of the test, and you know what my spiritual gift was? Apostolic. <laughs> so here's the thing. I mean, that's not the best way. I mean, those tests can be really helpful, but there's also those limitations in them as well, right? So there's other... Uh, there's problems with that, but that doesn't mean that spiritual gifts aren't a real thing. They are a legit and real thing. We call it Bible, the word for it is charismata. It means literally a gift 
of, of ability, a supernatural ability that God gives you as an act of his grace, his unmerited favor, his mercy. Uh, and the other word that's important in that, through that passage is it says assigned. <laughs> that means that God like assigns you a position and a place in the church. And he, then he gives you the gifting in order to, to do that job or do that part in the church. And the thing is, I mean, you don't get like a message with that. You don't, you know, you don't get like a, you know, a, a job description, service. So you kind of have to, there is a sense where we have to figure it out. What has God gifted me to do? Uh, in the mentions here, there's, you know, let's not get in the weeds about spiritual gifts and stick with what we talk about in this chapter, but it talks about prophecy, which in, in the context it's talking about or it's really talking about, I, I believe, preaching. It's about in preaching the Bible in a way or preaching the gospel in a way that is empowered by the Holy Spirit that God then uses to change hearts. There's a promise of that in the New Testament that he gives that, uh, he gives that gift to people. And we as a church have a long process where we go by to verify whether a, a man has that gift or not. Uh, the next one is Service. That's number. The second one is service. That means all the, all the, you know, behind the scenes, no glory stuff that the church needs to to run. Teaching is uh, different than preaching. Whereas preaching is showing, uh, showing us our sin and showing us how Jesus is the answer to that sin, uh, inflaming our minds with the beauty of Jesus, so that we have, uh, uh, so that we can, the Spirit will then work through us in our hearts to respond in love and gratitude for that. Whereas teaching is teaching the theology, teaching the grammar of the faith, teaching things about the Christian life, things like that. Exhort really means encouragement. There are some people that God gives this crazy ability to just lift you up out of your emotional tailspin. <laughs> you just sit down with them and they're like, and they do their thing and you're like, and you feel encouraged. You feel better. There's people who God has gifted with giving. Some people God entrusts with a lot of wealth for the purpose of funding the mission and ministry of the church. Uh, the ability to lead, able to get the church all on board, moving in a forward and outward direction. Herding cats, as it were. <laughs> and then there's mercy, the care for the herding. And it, Paul's point is that, you know, what he's pointing out is that not only has God given each of us one of these gifts and empowered us to do them, but each one is vitally necessary to the health of the whole body. Each and every one is absolutely necessary. And Paul uses the analogy of a body, a human body, and all the parts of the body uh, that are necessary. None of them are unnecessary. Consider the lowly appendix. For how, decades, Centuries, maybe. People have had their appendix inflared. People, uh, there's a surgery. You just pull, you just pull your appendix out because it's not necessary. Well, lo and behold, appendix is this little sack of the, this little tube that's along on your gut, right? Lo and behold, we've just figured out that it's like a reservoir of good bacteria that replenishes your system after you're sick and you lose all your good bacteria. <laughs> and, and as we more and more we learn about how vital gut health is. 
what we've been doing is we've been like ripping out and throwing away the thing that keeps your gut healthy and keeps you in good health, right? So this is my point. <laughs> for, for, I mean, just like people, you know, think, well, the appendix, you just throw that away. Listen, you cannot, man, have I understood this in the last few years, you cannot have a church without encouragers. You cannot have a church without people who have the gift of service and aren't all clamoring for the spotlight. <laughs> you cannot have a church without people who have the gift of mercy. Those people are so important to the life of the church. So important. And God, uh, there's just, in the great divorce, C.S. Lewis' great divorce, there's this great scene where uh, they're milling around and this woman shows up and she's just so glorious and so beautiful and attended by so many uh, people that they're thinking to themselves, this must be the queen of heaven. This must be uh, the greatest saint who ever walked the face of the earth. Who is this? Who is this? And it turns out that she's Sarah, a Sunday school, children's Sunday school teacher from a little church in Iowa that no one's ever, ever heard of. But her work was so vitally important to the church uh, that her glory shone in heaven. How, God, it was a way of showing how valuable how valuable all of those gifts are. So how do we know if you can't just take a spiritual gifts test and manipulate it to the answer you want? How do you know what your gift is? Uh, you get in there and try it out. For one, what do I, you know, that's a valid question. What do I really want to do? What do I feel good at? What do I feel called to? But there's, there's two parts of that. There's an internal call, what you feel called to do, and then there's the external call where the church leadership like, validates that. Says, yes, you're actually really good at this. You're just really, there's a lot of fruit from you doing this ministry. And that's so, so important for the church to be honest with people about that, right? You know why? Here's the, here's the big secret. The big secret is this. If you get it in your mind because of cultural values that there's one spiritual gift that you have to have, which is really the problem with Corinth, right? Everybody wanted the superstar gifts. Uh, if you get in your mind that you really want this one particular gift, but it's, you haven't been gifted in that by God, you're, gonna be, you're not gonna be happy, you're gonna be miserable. But if you get into that place where God has particularly gifted you to serve, that's the happiest place to be being the center of God's will, operating the way that God has created you to operate, seeing the fruit of it pouring out in and through the body, that is the happiest place to be and that is what God's, God's blessing of wanting to put us in those particular places. Last thing. That the local church is where we grow in the knowledge and the skill of community the knowledge and skill of community. A Gospel Coalition just posted an article uh, about this new app that's out called Gotta Go. Have you guys saw that or not? There's a new app where if you're like going in, if you're going on a date and you're not sure how it's gonna go or you're going into a situation that might be awkward, you can pre-program this thing to text you or call you 
with like an emergency like text or call at a, give, at a specific time so you can be like, oh my gosh, my mom's in the hospital. I'm so sorry, I gotta go. <laughs> I'm like, man, <laughs> why couldn't somebody have figured that out 15 years ago, man? Uh, well, it's, the point is, the point of the Gospel Coalition story is we just, we live in the gotta go world, you know? We live in the gotta go world. It is easy, it's socially acceptable, it's even socially expected to just peace out whenever the relationship gets difficult or whenever the relationship gets hard. Really, the cultural value is uh, this is not sparking joy in my life and I am out of here. And so people do that. And oftentimes, not all the time, one of the reasons people leave the local church is for that reason. It's hard to be in difficult relationships. People sin against you. The church does something that hurts you. When I do membership interviews, I tell people straight up, I was like, there is going to be a time in our relationship in this church where I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> I'm going to hurt your feelings. I'm going to do, I'm going to mess up. And what we ask is that you come, give me a chance to come and make us as a church a chance to make it right before you just disappear over the horizon. That's one of our membership vows. Why is that? It's because, like we live in a fallen world. Let me make a quick disclaimer. I mean, there's some, we're not talking about abusive relationships. We're not talking about, um, there's some relationships that become so broken they can't be put together. There's still a responsibility to part ways amicably as much as is possible to us, right? Uh, but I'm talking about, you know, regular, like, conflict and hurt feelings. And, and when, when, the, when, you know, everything's going great and you've got your great little Christian community and then the sin shows up. And the sin always shows up. Why? Because we're in a fallen world. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. God has built that into his plan so that that is one of the key necessary ingredients that God uses to build us up in character, to produce in hope in us, um, and to build us into the kind of people who are able to express uh, genuine love. It's one of the most important key ingredients, and it's the one thing that usually causes people to bounce. Now, again, that's really uncomfortable, right? The last, the last part of this passage in verses 9 through 21, Paul, in typical Paul style, he just rapid fires by my count, 23 commands. <laughs> just, I mean, can you imagine doing a sermon like that and show up and just give you 23, like, commands? You must do this, you must do this, you must do this. People would freak out. Uh, but what he's saying, I mean, in context, he's saying these are the things, these are commands, but he's saying these, these are the things that add toward, that lead towards, these are the building blocks of Christian community, the building blocks of developing love. Let me read him. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, 
but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. For the, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's no way we can break all those down in a sermon. Here's some of my favorites. Outdo each other in showing honor. It means go out of your way to consider others, your brothers and sisters in the church, more important than yourself and to assign to them a high esteem and high status. Not slothful in zeal means to be looking for what needs to be done in the church and jumping in with both feet. Fervent in spirit, this is my favorite one, literally means be boiling over in the spirit like, a, like water on the stove. It's an idiom. They're talking about water that's boiling over the top of the stove. He's saying be boiling, overflowing with the spirit. Serve the Lord. Really, it's, talk, it's make yourself a slave to the Lord. Present yourself, really present yourself as a blank check to Jesus. Do it with me whatever you want. Constant in prayer. It means, really, it means to be so, it means to be so focused on prayer like a tightrope walker is focused on balance as he walks across the Grand Canyon. <laughs> We're to consecrate ourselves and be that focused on prayer. And finally, bless those that persecute you and feed your enemies. And what I was like, wow, this is all, this, this whole context is all, it's all brother and sister, brother and sister context. This is talking about the church. So I'm sure this, this obviously extends to enemies and people who persecute us outside the church, but it's also talking about people who are antagonistic to us inside the church. The common, look, here's the thing. In, in Romans 7, Paul says, talks about the law. He says, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't even know what sin was, right? If it weren't the law, if coveting wasn't in the law, I wouldn't even know that that was a sin. And the same, I think the same is true of this. This is like, if these things weren't in the Bible, if Paul hadn't like rapid fired these out to us, we wouldn't even know what community was really all about. It would be all about having fun, looking cool, being with the right people, uh, what I can get out of you, the inspiration that you give me, the insights that you have into the Bible, the, you know, all good things that are all like about me. <laughs> And Paul says all these other things, really the common denominator is, is giving up of yourself and focusing on loving the people that are around you even in the midst of their sin. It's the whole book of Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer is really that common denominator. It's how to live life together with a bunch of sinners when you keep sinning against each other how to live in a cycle of, of forgiveness and restoration, trust in Jesus, remembering what our hope is. And in the midst of that community and building that community, we build each other up in love. And there's no better example of that than Jesus himself, right? I mean, some of these passages, a lot of these passages, you just, 
the only way to make you know, any sense of them is to plug Jesus' name in there. And so our example and the reason that we can do this in the midst of our sin is because Jesus' love for us is genuine. He has outdone us in showing us honor. He is patient in tribulation. He is constant in prayer for us. He blessed us who persecuted him. He's associated with the lowly. He didn't repay evil for evil. He did what was honorable in the sight of all. He didn't avenge himself but left it to God. He's loved his enemies and he has overcome evil in the world with his good. And as we focus on that and focus on what he's done for us, we can begin to practice that skill, that discipline, that practice of community and in and through it, God blesses us by creating in us to become the kind of people who are able to love one another. And that is what produces, that's what sparks joy. <laughs> Amen.